Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in this new series we're going to be speaking to some great guests who all know a thing or two about how to get something started. First, thanks to everyone who got in touch after last week's show, which featured my conversation with Rory Sutherland at the Work Life Flywheel book launch in front of a live audience. That seemed to go down really well. And thanks again to Rory for joining me. Now, my guest today is the CEO of HackerJob, Mark Chaffee. Mark founded the company in 2014, and they're on a mission to make the hiring process fairer, faster, and based on skills rather than backgrounds. Mark and I had a great conversation covering a wide range of subjects, including how we think about the word talent, what skills will become increasingly important in the new world of work, the latest trends that he's seeing in hiring, and how we should be thinking about redesigning the working week. If you'd like to find out more about Mark and Hacker Job, you'll find more information in the show notes. And of course, if you'd like to read more about these topics, check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, and my book, Work Life Flywheel, both of which I also link to in the show notes. So let's jump into my conversation with Mark. I'm interested in how you define talent because it is this sort of catch-all term now that people use to describe, to almost replace recruitment you know, the talent industry. But do you still think about talent as actual genuine skill, value creation, experience, intelligence, all of these things wrapped up into someone who has this particular talent? Or do you tend to use that catch-all term as well now? Yeah, I think um, I think if you think about it in the industry lens, I think talent arguably we use it because we want it to rebrand recruitment i think we should acknowledge that i think there probably is an element of that but i think talent should be more holistic it's not just about the like the the hiring of an individual you know more, maybe more that whole life cycle journey um i think if you look at it as like what do i see as talent i think more so than ever i would describe somebody that is talented today or the underpinning of somebody that's talented is actually the ability to learn because I think that, yes, we probably use the word talent in society to describe sports people, movie actors, musicians, etc. But if you think about talent in the workplace, skills are evolving so quickly. If you look at the world, we spend a lot of time with tech, right? There's new programming languages, frameworks, tools, methodologies constantly. And the idea that you're going to hire an expert in one of those specific areas which unfortunately is still a lot of the ways companies do hire, that skill could become very obsolete very quickly. And actually, therefore, what you're really looking for is somebody that has the ability to learn. That might be a new technical skill, but that might be, you know, chat GTPs all the rage right now. You know, and I'm really fascinated by this idea of like, there might be a job that's like a prompt engineer, which is, mm. you know, the ability to write good questions is actually what makes chat GTP more effective or less effective. Now, prompt engineering is not being discussed in any career debates in, in universities or schools, I can assure you of that, right? So, you know, I think that the technology is evolving so quickly. I think the most talented people in the world of business and work are people that have learned that meta skill of the ability to learn because with Google and YouTube and maybe with chat GTP now, it really is going to be those people that have, you know, self-motivated and driven to learn will be the ones that have the most talent, I think, in inside business. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was just writing something this morning about this idea of prompt engineering. And 
reflecting on my own inability to generate interesting results from my experiments with it and, and both in terms of kind of the the, the visual images you know the, the prompts you can put in to create ai generated image but also the text so you know we did all of that and that demonstrates that very often in history the utility of technology has been demonstrated by those that wield that technology effectively. You know, you put the same thing in two people's hands and they use it very, very differently. But as you were talking there, what I was reflecting on is actually when you think about people's unique talents, it is a unique combination of different skills, isn't it? So like you described, you could have two people who do the same Java assessment and they both demonstrate the same level of skill on that assessment test you know, might receive exactly the same score now what determines whether you want to hire them or not well there's going to be loads of other personality traits communication skills demonstrations of interest in learning and development they're going to help you define that but how do you measure for that so obviously lots of businesses hiring a bunch of different roles um, lots of different experience levels and you see lots of talent coming through your platform so what types of ways are people differentiating themselves now and is it easy to actually demonstrate that objectively yeah i think it's a great question i think just to before we jump into the the practical i love the mental model that you can go for trying to be like the best one percent or 0.1 percent in the world at a specific skill and probably professional sport is is a great example of that can be michael jordan tiger woods uh whoever it may be or you could take two very different skills and just get to like the top 10%, which actually is quite achievable. So, you know, to use your example very practically, could I be like top 10% in the world at, you know, programming in Java, let's say, which actually given <laughs> probably is, you know, not many people in the world that actually know how to program in Java, right? Not that hard yeah. to get into the top 10% of it. And then could I combine that with a skill that maybe is less common for people that are good programming Java? Let's just say public speaking, right? I'm not saying that's necessarily strictly true, but you merge those two skills together. And suddenly what do you have? You have somebody that is very technically savvy, but then is an an elite communicator and can communicate those ideas maybe to non-technical people. And suddenly that combination is a lot more valuable than just trying to be the best 0.1% Java engineer in the world. And, And maybe even if it's not more valuable, it's certainly more attainable, you know? So I love that mental model of like, what are two very different skills that you kind of merge together or three or four different skills that you merge together, which end up giving you that kind of unique talent that you, you described? I think when it comes to assessing this, you know, I still think companies struggle bluntly. I still think companies are still very much in the mindset of skill acquisition, arguably, you know, beyond kind of, you know, think about jobs more broadly, actually what people are trying to do is acquire very specific skills into their organization. Now, I've had great debates with with lots of kind of heads of recruitment, heads of talent acquisition, and VP of engineering and CTOs about like what makes the greatest software engineers. And actually, you speak to a lot of people, and they'll describe the softer skills first and foremost before they'll describe those hard technical skills. You know, the ability to communicate, um, you know, really clearly and concisely, the ability to work in teams. You know, and products are built in teams, not by not by individuals. So how do you then design a fair recruitment process where you obviously need a fundamental level of skill? You know, that is clear and there should be a bar that you have to pass through. 
I would love to see more companies assess the ability to learn skills rather than assessing a specific hard skill. Um, mm. I think that that's a far more valuable trait as an engineer. But, and that's pretty standardized at this point. So you, there's definitely ways you can do that. Pair programming, online assessment platforms, et cetera. There's, there's definitely ways you can assess people's technical skills. I think still what's far more gray is how you assess those softer skills in inverted commas um, that I think is honestly where a lot more bias comes into the recruitment process. And it's a lot more where, you know, as a hiring manager, do I appreciate the way that person is communicating with me back and forth? And I think that's probably the area where, you know, often get labeled values or behavioral interviews. Um, mm. And I think that's arguably where there's probably a lot more work to be done on on rethinking how we assess talent. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it, as well with it related to learning. How do you demonstrate that someone's effective at learning? Or that, that not just they have a propensity for it, but actually they have a determination to learn. I'm sort of fascinated with this idea. We we talked a couple of weeks ago, yeah. didn't we, about um, my obsession with how to it's not even to demonstrate progress to other people it's almost to demonstrate it to yourself I, i've recognized this in my life for years but certainly since i had kids and unlimited time it you forget so much of what happens day by day and week by week it's actually really quite difficult to see your own progress so if it's difficult to see your own progress perhaps it's difficult to demonstrate to to other people that you've made that progress as well but uh, one actual comment on this soft skills thing it's interesting you to me you know the online learning platform they've been talking a lot over the last six months about power skills kind of reframing soft skills to actually say look soft implies that they are less important whereas you know in the new world of work particularly where communication whether through screens particularly writing is really key power skills is probably a more appropriate way of reframing it so I quite like that the other thing that came to mind as you're describing this thing is the more you put together these different combinations of skills people start thinking well actually how much how much need is there for a Java dev who's great at public speaking and perhaps speaks French? Well, you know, whatever the combination is. Well, the world is bloody huge now. And again, that is one change where global hiring means that there is scope for people of really specific niche combinations of skills to find a home and find demand for that combination of skills. How have you seen this kind of opening up of hiring manifest in attitudes towards talent and has it been overblown or are people thinking really differently about where they find talent and how they match talent with opportunities yeah it's super interesting i think the world has definitely permanently changed pre-covid post-covid in terms of how we res how we associate location with hiring for sure um however I very much believe this idea that it is now a global distributed workforce has been completely overblown. And I think the part of the problem with that is I'm sure we consume a lot of the same media and a lot of the same media is very biased to startups and, and kind of how startups operate. And whilst SMBs as a category of business make up the vast uh, amount of companies out there, tech startups as a fraction of SMBs is, is relatively small. And actually, if you look at a percentage of where people are employed, you know, obviously the, the big companies employ, a, you know, a significant um, percentage of the population. So are earlier stage startups challenging the location point more? I think you're seeing like this real heavy split there where some people are going like, 
early stage, we're in office. Like that early stage is so important. We're going to be in office all the time. You know, it's that sleep at your desk culture. We're trying to change the world and we're going to go really, really in person. And I think, you know, a lot of businesses in that space are also going, talent's so hard to find. You know, there's a lot of cost pressure in the world right now. Actually, can we have more of a global strategy, which will A, make it much easier to hire and B, there's often some arbitrage you can play with salaries um, to do that. So I absolutely think the world of tech startups is changing. And I think you're seeing that real split. I think once you get beyond that, I think the fundamental change what we see is this concept of like remote local, which is, you know, you look today on Hacker Job, there's probably 5,000 live jobs, you know, active jobs that are being hired against. About 70% of them will be remote, but in their country. So you can work mm. anywhere in the UK. You can work anywhere in the US. You could work anywhere in France. You can't work anywhere full stop. And the idea there is that we're going to have hubs where you will need to be. Maybe it's once a month, once a quarter, whatever that may be, depending on, on kind of how your team is structured. And it also solves a lot of the compliance issues. I know there are you know, a handful of startups that have absolutely skyrocketed over the last few years to solve those compliant problems. But um, And I think that's here to stay. I think people want that flexibility. Mm. I think companies are willing to give that flexibility. And bluntly, I think it's awesome. You know, We've seen in, in the UK, for instance, Pre-COVID, there was about a 10K difference between salaries hired in London and salaries hired outside of London for the exact same skill level seniority. That's basically gone to zero, that gap now between salaries being hired for people based in London versus out of London as people now realize that if I'm hiring, if I'm a company based in Manchester, I am now competing with companies in London and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, I was very much just competing in my local Northwest hub or London yeah. hub or Southwest hub. So I think there are some some fundamental changes that I don't think will be reversed. And whether you want to call it hybrid working or, or whatever the phrase is that you want to use, I think we'll, we'll be here to stay. But I think the idea that we've gone to this like global distributed workforce and that is now the norm, I don't think is the case. I think it might have gone from 1% to 5%, but it's not, you know, 25, 30, 40% of the workforce from what we see. Hmm. I mean, if you extrapolate the changes we've experienced so far, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I know this is completely hypothetical, but you know, why not? Let's speculate. Why not? Um, you know, look forward ten, twenty years. Is it just going to be become increasingly borderless? And because, yeah, this, some of the compliance issues are being solved. It's still a pain, pain in the ass, to be honest. A lot of the time to hire people in multiple different countries, but some of the employer record platforms and things like this—they're helping solve that. Um, Hiring can be difficult as well across cultures and territories and, you know, trying to standardize how you assess skills and stuff like that. Again, all of these things are improving. They're not great right now. But 10, 20 years in the future, is it just going to be normal? I mean, do you think that all of those benefits are just too too good to turn down for too long? Or is there just something about being able to get people in, in together however frequently once a month once a quarter that's just going to mean that in-person working remains a significant part of work in general such a fascinating question okay a few views um first one which i'm completely underqualified to comment on but i think it's an interesting observation nonetheless um, never never stopped me like, before <laughs> yeah exactly certainly hasn't stopped me either if you look at like the geopolitical situation um, which is crazy. I didn't think I'd ever use the word geopolitical on a, on a podcast about <laughs> talent. Um, you know, arguably we're seeing the reverse of globalization, you know, maybe because of COVID and what happens. You're seeing in America, you know, a massive rush to kind of 
get semiconductor manufacturing, you know, back in the US. Uh, fascinated to see what we could do in this country if someone had a really exciting vision for it. Unfortunately, that's unlikely. Um, and how does the reverse of globalization then impact this question about talent and saying, actually, if we're trying to insure, will there be a, a, a desire for governments to incentivize insuring or onshoring jobs? Possibly. Like I said, I'm pretty underqualified. If you're asking me as like, you know, I've got a new job as CEO of the world and, you know, my 20 year vision for, for planet Earth. I think it would be an incredible thing for society if that we could truly have a distributed global workforce. And it's through this very simple lens, which, yeah, is very cliche, but I absolutely believe is that talent is everywhere. And, you know, I grew up in, you know, on a council estate in Southampton. I was very lucky to have incredible parents that really, really pushed me and, and kind of broadened my horizons. I, all of my friends were so talented, but you know, when we were 15, we didn't know what an investment banker was, what a lawyer was, what an accountant was. You just don't know what you don't know. And if you're growing mm. up around people that are teachers or work in trades or whatever, that's kind of your worldview. And that's in the UK. You know, we are or whatever the seventh, eighth biggest economy in the world and incredibly privileged to, to be from here. If you extrapolate that to, to other countries that, you know, do not have the same access to Internet infrastructure, education that we've got here, and how much talent there is available. And you only need to look at like the world population graphs, you know, those fun charts you see on Twitter where you see like where we're gonna be by the end of this century. You know, and America, I don't think is even on the top 10 for, for population forecast by the end of the, mm. this century, right? So I would love there to be a, a view or a world where, you know, we really are hiring on a global scale. And I think, that would unlock a lot of economic opportunity, but I think bluntly would make businesses much stronger. We talk about diversity and inclusion a lot. What's really the goal of diversity and inclusion is diversity of thought. And if you could go further and further afield, you're going to build better and better products. The one technological innovation we might see that will facilitate this is I still think humans are relationship beasts. You know, we love having interpersonal relationships with people. One of the things that makes us quite unique is this ability to gather in, you know, big, big populations, whether it be cities, etc. Will augmented reality finally come to fruition? Are the product that Apple is finally going to release at some point with their lenses mean that actually you could get that interpersonal feeling, you know, through some form of mixed reality, VR, AR, to have us sat around the table recording this podcast and be based in five or six different countries right and that might be one of the technological leaps that that we need in order to make it happen so if i had to be a betting person i would say that it will take a lot longer than 10 to 20 years because i think we've worked in this way for so long um that you know i think change probably happens a little bit longer but i would love it to happen because i genuinely believe that idea that talent is everywhere and today opportunity is Related to that, but on a slightly different tip, I think more of us have got used to operating flexibly over the past couple of years. And I think flexibility means kind of different things to different people, but I'm thinking of it in terms of people's relationship with an employer and decoupling work from employment in a sense. So, you know, it used to be get a job, work for that company for 25 years, you know, get your carriage clock at the end or your watch, whatever. But that's becoming less and less common. And actually it's become, you know, even the idea of full-time employment, you know, again, perhaps this has been overblown, but it's it's certainly 
a lower percentage than it used to be of us that are in full-time employment. But of course, what comes with flexibility for individuals has to be that the organizations have flexibility as well in terms of how they um, employ people or bring people into contracts. And there's loads of knock-on effects to that. One of which is this idea of fewer hours or allowing people the flexibility to say run a side project um and i've been talking about this recently because of the economic downturn and you know just try to sort of throw some ideas out there as how can businesses support people through a difficult time and one way is to give people money but the reality is most companies can't do that so might they be able to give people some time back in order to pursue um other interests What's your view on whether it's possible for people to feasibly have a side project or a side hustle alongside a job? And as a second part to that, is it even possible to do your job in fewer than five days a week, like a full day week, for example? So, yeah, unpick them one by one. So is it possible to do a side hustle alongside full-time work? Yes, like a trillion, trillion percent. And what has been amazing over the last decade, and I think probably still understated, is the tools that are now available to individuals to create a side hustle. You know, combine Google with YouTube, with maybe ChatGTP and the ability to learn, combined with like a Canva, right? And like, you do not need to learn how to use Photoshop anymore. You can go onto Canva. I was doing it with my mum this weekend and showing her how to use Canva. Yeah. It's so straightforward, right? Amazing. Figma is maybe slightly more technical, but, you know, again, not that hard to pick up, right? And they were really hard skills to learn just five years ago. So I think that the, the, the tools that are out there now definitely enable individuals to do it. At the end of the day, it just comes down to what are your wants and what are your motivations? You know, if we assume that you sleep for eight hours a day and that you've got a full-time job for eight hours a day, you've then got eight other hours a day that you can you know, use and it's up to individuals. Some people want to use that in pure leisure time. That's completely up to them and, and that's perfect. Other people, there is absolutely the ability to start side hustles and you don't need to look to the side hustles that then become a unicorn or, or whatever that, you know, complete edge case is. There are a number of people out there, loads of people out there that start side hustles that end up going into full-time work because they might realize maybe I'm going to earn some less money in year one or year two but the flexibility it gives me the control it gives me you know suddenly i get to do what i want when i want is worth it now i definitely think entrepreneurship has become too glamorous and i definitely think we need to accept that not everyone needs to do a side hustle and that's completely cool that's why i make that point some people just want to work a nine-to-five job and then spend time doing leisure activities or sitting and watching Netflix. Cool. Like let them do that. Right. There's no trauma. Um, but I absolutely think it's possible. And I would encourage people that's where you should start. I don't mean you should just quit your job and just go and start a business. I think always start yeah. in that way would be my advice. On the second piece, like, is it possible for us to work more effectively? Um, and should we challenge the 40 hour, five day work week? I'm a massive advocate of challenging everything. So, you know, where does the five-day, 40-hour work week come from? Not a historian. I'm not into geopolitics. I'm not a historian. And I keep talking about things that I'm not qualified to talk about. But from my understanding, it's from the Henry Ford era of, you know, creating cars. Um, and I believe there's something because they were working too many hours and nobody wanted to buy a car because they couldn't use it. So therefore, actually, by restricting work slightly, he ended up increasing more demand for his products. I mean, if that's not capitalism at its finest, I don't know what is. <laughs> um, 
So has the world evolved in the 100 years since then? Absolutely. So should we challenge the 40-hour week? Absolutely. Um, I'm fascinated by a lot of the technology companies in China have done that. And their view is you work 12 hours a day for six days a week. So, you know, just by um, challenging doesn't mean necessarily that people are going to work less. You know, a lot of businesses in China have gone the other way, um, which is super interesting. What I'm always very mindful of is anything that sounds too PR headline grabby. And I think this big four-day work week movement at the moment is very PR headline grabby. And I don't think people have really worked through the practical implications of what that means. So I think if you unpick it, there are a lot of different ways you could work less hours in a week. Right? My mum was a teacher. They would do job shares when you know, they were coming back from like maternity leave. So my mum might teach two and a half days a week and another teacher would teach two and a half days a week. Right? Very reasonable, makes complete sense. There is obviously just part-time or, or shorter hours where people will work 30 hours a week and they will get paid for 30 hours a week. I think the thing that I'm slightly fearful of is this idea that you're going to get paid the same. You're just expected to do all of that work in four days. And I think there's a few things that worry me with that. One, if you're working 10 hours or 11 hours a day versus the eight hours that you work currently, does your productivity just drop off? And therefore, actually, you're going to end up more stressed, more burnt out than you would be over five. Society isn't set up in this way today. So from a business perspective, if we've got customers that work on a Friday and none of our staff work on a Friday, what happens there? So I think there's some real practical and maybe you can solve it with shift work, but I still think there's some practical challenges there. And the cynic in me is that businesses will say this and say, yeah, you only work four days. But just like you're on your emails on a Saturday and Sunday now, you're probably still on your emails on that fifth day. And therefore, you know, do you truly have a three day weekend? Um, is that the, the right way to go down? So I think we should challenge it. I think that with the advent of like hybrid and remote work, I think it makes sense to challenge it. I don't necessarily like this construct of, yeah, just do five days of work in four. I think there might be a completely different way to think about work um, where maybe you're doing a couple of hours and then taking a few hours off and coming back, et cetera. Um, and you touched on it when you asked a question about flexibility. It's a very personal definition. And I think that should be the goal is how do we empower people to work the styles that make sense for them that also make sense for the employer. And I'm not convinced that that's squeezing five days work into four. Interesting. I tend to agree. I think there's there's loads that can be done to improve eight hours a day from nine to five, five days a week. I mean, it's madness to think that everybody, you'd get the same productivity, effectiveness, creativity, all of the stuff which determines whether a business is successful or not. It's, it's just madness to think that by standardizing it, you could get equal results from everybody. And look, ultimately, it's not all about hyper growth, but you know, people start companies to grow those companies and make them pay for their lifestyles. And that might be that they want to become very, very wealthy, or they just want it to pay for their mortgage and their car. But if you're an entrepreneur or, or somebody running a business, that's the purpose. And you employ people by continuing to grow that company and keep it profitable. And therefore, it's anyway, everyone's interest to make it work. So I suppose that, that's the first of all, that's the lens we should look at it. This isn't, you know, it's great when you can allow people flexibility and allow them to develop the flywheel in their life, just to get a little plug in for my book. Um, but it's a bit naive to think that, yeah, as you said, just switch it to four days a week and you get all these benefits. Because the truth is, if you're a business which is incredibly well run with great leadership, great management, great training, 
I suspect you probably could do something like that and see some benefits just by getting people focused in, in fewer hours during the week. You probably could. But if you're a shit company, poorly run, reducing it to four days is going to exacerbate it. Yeah, um, look, I absolutely agree. And I think in the, in the environment that we're about to go through with, with recessions and fears, you know, Google obviously made the 20% time very famous way back when, and Google has probably been the best money printing business of all time, full stop. Um, but are we going to see such indulgences, which I might get you know, criticized for saying that giving somebody 20% of their time that you're paying for, for them to go and work on a personal project is an indulgence. But is this whole debate around the four-day work with a bit of an indulgence when, you know, businesses are struggling to survive right now? And actually, like you say, you know, this is not philanthropy. This is not charity. Businesses are there to make money at the end of the day and they're going to take the right decision for them. So yeah. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves through what will be the first proper macro downturn for, you know, whatever, 12 years. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how that changes things. I mean, but by the way, I don't think, as I said, I think experimenting with these things is actually important. I mean, this is the thing. I don't think it's either a four-day week is the uh, holy grail or four-day week cannot work for us. I think the key thing is constantly experimenting, using 20% of your time to experiment with new things and having 8% of the time focused on the things you know work. I mean, that's generally a pretty good policy, whether it's your life, your work, or if you're running a business for your business. I mean, that's that's a good policy i think that's where the 80 20 thing can come into it just changing gears a little bit i'm just interested in hearing your experience you know you're several years in now into running a company you know i probably feel like you're learning stuff every every single day still it never goes away but i'm wondering if you were to start a company tomorrow what would you do differently yeah obviously i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I really think there are two different phases of of kind of building a business, or at least an hour, right? Building a, a tech startup. There is finding product market fit, you know, building a product that genuinely solves a user's needs and the user wants to continue using that product and pay for that product at, at some point. And then there is what, you know, and Peter Till very famously wrote the book Zero to One, all about that phase, right? And it's kind of that, you know, getting something started. And then there is like the scale phase, the one to N, you know, where, okay, you've now got a product that works. You need to figure out sales and marketing and distribution. You need to figure out org, org structure. You need to figure out hiring. You need to figure out HR, you know, finance, all of the kind of functions that come off the back of it. And my view on this is I don't think you can cheat product market fit. So I don't think being a first, second, third, fourth time founder changes the product market fit phase. Yes, you might get better at customer discovery. And yes, you might get better at not investing 12 months of time building a product in isolation, hoping that you're going to solve someone's problem. And then you shirt some 12 months later and you realize it doesn't solve any of their problems. Um, but I think there is so much content out there now, you know, way back from the lean startup by Eric Ries, whenever that was, 07, 08, through to now on like how to rapidly iterate products and and how to take a very customer-centric approach. And maybe I do take it for granted because I spend so much of my life in this world, but that product market fit phase, you've just got to be obsessive about speaking to customers, showing products really, really early and iterating very quickly. And that means you might find product market fit in six months. It may take you two years. It may take you three years, right? You need to go through that iteration cycle. And so 
I don't know that doing it again helps you cheat that phase. I think maybe that's what, you know, maybe the emphasis there is just making sure that you do do the customer discovery, the rapid iteration, and you release products very, very quickly. I think Reid Hoffman's got a, a great quote. It's like, if you're not utterly embarrassed by the first release of your product, you've released too late. Uh, and I think that's always a great mental model for that phase. I think where the absolute advantages are being a second time founder, if I was to do this all over again, is, is when you've got product market fit, how quickly you can scale. Nice. One final question. This is a bit more of a personal thing. Well, it could be personal, it could be related to the business, but I'm always interested to ask, what's one thing you wish you could be doing every day, but for some reason, you just never seem to make the time for it. It's something that you think, if I did this every day, my life would be better. I'll be better at my work but you just don't find the time to do it. So the first thing that I like, when I answer a question like this, which you've complete, caught me completely off guard on, I like just <laughs> answering whatever the first thing that comes to my yeah, mind yeah. is, right? Like, what is the gut feel? Because, yeah, I mean, it'd be easy to say exercise once a day or some, some boring answer like that. So for me, the first thing that came to mind was, like, play, you know, like having fun. Like, they're probably, you know, my fun at the moment in life is probably just going out for, for a few drinks with the boys on the weekend, right? It's probably as much as fun as I get in my life right now. Monday to Friday probably isn't too much fun. And so if I think about play, like what's one thing that I really miss? Growing up, I had a music studio and used to make a lot of music. And I haven't touched like any like music software, like a Logic or a Reason in I don't know, maybe 10 years now, right? Eight years. And I always say to myself, like one day when, you know, I'm no longer working on Hacker Job, like, I, will, I don't know, move to LA and just have this beautiful studio on the beach and I'll just go back to making music. And uh, and it's honestly the, like some of the happiest memories, some of the most like, just, you know, like just pure joy was making music. So I think how that would translate to today is that like the piano is my favorite instrument. My dad is an amazing pianist to the point at which you can just play a song and my dad will listen to it for like a minute or two and then just be able to play it on the piano. And to me, it is like magical watching that. So if I could fit an yeah. hour a day, which was, I think, your question, it would be playing the piano for an hour a day. Pure play, pure joy, mm. you know, no business relation to it, no plans to make money out of it, nothing like that. Just pure, yeah. pure fun. Yeah, like it. Great. Well, look, it's been uh, interesting exploring lots of topics, some of which neither of us are qualified to speak about, but uh, you know, many of which we are. <laughs> Is there anything you want to you wanna add before we wrap up? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, thanks for having me on. It's been super fun to, to bounce around. I feel like we could bounce around on many more topics for hours. And I just think yeah, yeah. it's, to, to your point, I think, and I think a lot of the work you're doing on just like challenging these very like deep held beliefs we have, you know, the phrase work-life balance, which I know you're doing a lot of work on work-life flywheel instead, right? And I think really challenging how we work, I think is amazing. And I think we will see, I think in the last two years, we've seen a massive shift in how we work, maybe the biggest shift for a generation. And I think, you know, that question you asked about the next 10, 20 years, I think will be very, very interesting to see how the world of work evolves. So yeah, I'm going to keep devouring your content and, uh, and I'm sure we'll keep debating this over many more drinks in the future. And that was my conversation with Mark Chaffee, CEO of HackerJob. Thanks again to Mark for his time and also to you for listening. I'll be back here again next week with another fantastic guest and a conversation focused on the future of work, careers and how to get something started. Until then, have a great week.